To see a painting by Edward Hopper is often to feel loneliness in scenes that shouldn't be lonely, that is scenes from ordinary urban life. Edward Hopper is considered one of the greatest painters of the 20th century, but he had only sold one painting by the time he turned 40. Everything changed during his Summer of Love in 1923, 100 years ago, when Hopper visited Gloucester, Massachusetts, just north of Boston, and met his wife. And he found the inspiration that catapulted his career. The Cape Anne Museum in Gloucester is hosting an exhibition of more than 60 of Edward Hopper's paintings, etchings and drawings that explore the importance of place as a catalyst for creativity. It's called Edward Hopper and Cape Anne, Illuminating an American Landscape. And Dr. Elliot Bostwick-Davis is the curator and she joins me now. Hello. Hello, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, lovely to chat to you. I'm, a, I'm not much of a visual arts person, but I'm a big fan of Edward Hopper. I don't know if you hear that often. There is something about his paintings that move me in, in a way that I'm not, I have feelings that I don't usually feel looking at art. Did he have a bit of an ability to cross over to people even who don't spend a lot of time looking at art in their everyday lives? I do think he does have that. I think that may come out of his life earlier on as an illustrator where he often thought about narrative. But I also think for people who are very responsive to architecture and landscape, which seem to be really what is moving people up at the Cape Ann Museum, at least what I'm hearing, you know, just from people who may not know him that well. Mm. Of course, many people who live on Cape Ann have lived with these buildings that he painted in the 20s when he was there in 1912 as well, his first visit. Uh, so for them, I think they're enjoying that aspect of it. I heard one person who said she was moved to tears hmm. by the watercolor of Anderson's house. And so that's just interesting to me that that a house portrait like that from yeah. 1926 in watercolor could move someone to tears. How do you know you're looking at a painting by Edward Hopper? For me, well, many people think of his later scenes after he is on Cape Ann in New York City when he's really painting nocturnal scenes such as the drugstore from 1927, the corner building with the window visible uh, at night, or his most famous uh, building at an intersection, Nighthawks, um, uh, from 1941 in the Art Institute of Chicago. So I think people think of that or perhaps automat of the sole woman sitting at a table in a in a small um, place, in a place where, you know, a public place where you could get um, pieces of cake or small meals um, by putting a coin into a um, a little window. It used to survive even into my youth in New York City, but no longer. So I think that's what most people think of. I think this period in Cape Ann, even for me, I, I worked on Hopper for the MFA Boston in 2007, but I really didn't know his Gloucester years well, nor what was going on during those five visits that he made to Cape Ann. So what was going on in his career before he arrived in Gloucester in 1923? At that point in 1920, prior to 1923, he had spent four summers on the island of Monhegan, which is about 10 miles off the coast. It's a small island. And his teacher, Robert Henry at the New York School of Art, had raved about it. And his direct contemporaries, uh, who were also classmates, Rockwell Kent and George Bellows, had had great success painting there. So I think he tried that. He also was two summers on the coast of Maine in a gunkwit, and it's there, and actually in, on Monhegan as well, that he overlapped with fellow 
uh, member of the Henry Circle and student in the New York School of Art, Joe, Joe Nivison, who was so instrumental in introducing him and suggesting and really encouraging him to try watercolor during that summer on Cape Ann of 1923. So that's where he was. And he was also supporting himself through um, illustration work for popular magazines like Scribner's and uh, the um, uh, magazine for a local um, uh, boat company called The Dial. Uh, and then also he was making etchings. He taught himself or maybe had a few um, colleagues help him get started, but largely made etchings on his own in his New York City residence where he moved in 1913 uh, to 3 Washington Square North, where he lived after that for the rest of his life. How does a cat bring together one of America's greatest painters and the woman who would be his muse? <laughs> yes. So Joe Josephine Nivison uh, arrives in Gloucester and she's staying with, uh, we don't know yet, maybe it'll come about in a, one of her journals that may be available eventually, but uh, she's staying with an unnamed female roommate and she does bring along her beloved tabby cat. And as the story goes, the, uh, Arthur, the tabby, Go, uh, wanders off on the back streets of Gloucester and Edward Hopper, who has met presumably Arthur in New York City, they lived in nearby apartments in New York and in, in lower New York in Greenwich Village. And he gathers up Arthur and brings Arthur back to a very grateful Joan Nivison, along with <laughs> he presents her with a paint, uh, sorry, hand drawn map of Gloucester and how to get around to paint the sites that he loves. And he, wow. he offers, he invites her to come on morning painting excursions with him. And he says that so as not to wake her roommate, he'll announce his arrival um, by a toss of a pebble at her window. And so oh off gosh. they go and paint side by side uh, around Cape Ann. And the first subject he paints in watercolor, which was her favorite medium, happens to be Eastern Point Light Lighthouse. Um, Cape Ann is well known because it's out, it's a peninsula out on uh, north of Boston, about an hour's drive north of Boston. And it was the location of the oldest active fishing port in the United States. So it's on this peninsula. And uh, in any event, um, it has great light. The artist loved formed by glaciers and it has, it had a trolley system and a, and a railway uh, to, you know, fuel the packing industry and sort of serve the fishing and packing industry there. So they're able to get around and they do, and we learn about where they're painting, uh, not just that summer, but as they after they fall in love uh, the following summer, um, he wants to return and she's ready to go off to Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is at the far end of the other Cape on Cape Cod, where she'd been in 1915 and 1922. And they have a huge argument about it. And she decides to offer a solution. She says, well, I'll go to, I'll go to Gloucester as long as we marry today, which was then Ju July 9th, 1924. So they marry and spend their honeymoon back on, on Cape Ann. Interesting. Just looking at um, Edward Hopper's lighthouse painting from 1923, the one you were talking about, and then he does another lighthouse 1929, six years later, and you can really see him becoming Edward Hopper in those few years in my very uneducated view. Yes, very much so. I mean, he's really learning in the early watercolor of Eastern Point Light, and he really explores those lighthouses on the coast of Maine. So they're north of Cape Ann uh, in Portland and Elizabeth, uh, Cape Elizabeth in Maine, and they're able to really travel there because at that point he's become so successful with the sales of his watercolors made in Gloucester and around Cape Ann that they're able to afford a car to get them, you know, that functions really as a mobile studio. So they drive up the coast and they paint what are really his classic lighthouses, both in watercolor and oil up on the coast of Maine.
Does it diminish Joan Nivison to call her a muse? She was arguably more successful as an artist in 1923 than he was, but are you, are you comfortable with that term in relation to her? You know, it's funny. I think now people move away from that term because the term doesn't have as much agency. And mm. I do think as a former uh, thespian, she was an amateur actress. She loved to perform with the Washington Square players in New York City that were down in Greenwich Village. She loved to perform. Uh, we don't know which parts, but she was out at Provincetown surrounded by actors and artists. So I think in a way, as as it's clear from what archives we do have available for journals and letters, that she, at a certain point, after their marriage, she was the only model for Edward Hopper. But she also act, um, loved to act the parts. They they named the characters that he was thinking of. And even early on as an art student, we were able to include in the show their shared teacher, Robert Henry's full-length portrait of her when she comes to his class when she's only 22. And he writes in his journal that he wasn't sure she was going to be able to... Uh, take the pose that he saw her as she was leaving one of the classes. She looked like a human question mark to him. And the next day he said he'd like to paint her. And the next day he showed, she showed up in the studio and he writes in his journal that much to his surprise, she was able to strike this, the pose he wanted Mm -hmm. and to uh, pose for him. And it became, she was called the art student and in parentheses, Miss Josephine Nivison, uh, sort of the, really the poster woman for the young woman for the school and the po- and the portrait he was very pleased with traveled around the U.S. and also uh, came back and was in New York reproduced on the front of one of the local papers. So it was well known. I'm talking to Dr. Elliot Boswick Davis, who's curator of a major Edward Hopper exhibition uh, in the Cape Ann Museum in Gloucester. And Elliot, when we see women in Edward Hopper's paintings, are they often versions? of Joe, Joe Nivison, eventually Joe Hopper. Yes, they very much are. And we know that through the recent show, especially uh, the wonderful show curated by Kim Connedy for the Whitney Museum, Hopper's New York. Mm. And there you can see his drawings where he's envisioning Joe as the um, striptease artist in Gurley's show. And you can see the early drawings of her in the nude in their apartment uh, in in New York City at Washington Square North. And she even writes about it that it was she was posing in the winter and it was cold and she's obviously posing nude. So she backed up and got, you know, a burn from the the little um, pot belly stove mm. they used for extra an extra heat source. So, yes, you can very much see him you, beginning with Joe. Joe's um, features occasionally and even in Nighthawks, the woman who's hmm. it's not clear if she a sandwich or she's seated at the counter very much initially looks like joe and as time moves on edward hopper's imagination really takes over also as as she ages she's of course posing for and he confirms this both of the figures in um, second story sunlight and one figure is quite older sitting reading with white hair and the other is quite a young figure uh kind of preening on the railing of the balcony there and of course he's been He's been really drawing and painting her since she since they were married and they were both um, they were just a year apart. So at the time they married, she was 41 and he was 42, about to be 42. I love this. Um, Can I ask when you walk the streets of Gloucester, is Edward Hopper's ghost all around you? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Uh, Certainly um, the way he painted his house, I mean, his houses feel that he painted have certainly a great presence. And 
and owners of those houses. And I, and Oliver Barker was brilliant in inviting those who lived in a house that Hopper had painted to the museum for a gathering, which we I was at, and he had this wonderful cake in the shape of Anderson's house. Huh. But I do think many of the people who inhabit the houses that he painted or drew, um, they really take pride in it and so retain the look. So for instance, the current owners of Hodgkin's house, the oil painting on the cover of the book that accompanies the show, um, the owners actually have kept the um, pots of geranium so that it looks very much the way Hopper painted it in 1928. Oh, that's so cool. Um, can you explain to us, explain to me, the significance of his move from painting in oil to painting in watercolour? That was a suggestion of uh, Niverson, of his uh, eventual wife. What difference does that make? How does that transform his painting? It's a it's a great question. I think for me, having worked in in both medias as media yeah. as well, and I think thinking about an earlier artist who also worked in Gloucester in fifty years earlier in eighteen seventy three, Winslow Homer, who of course painted in oils as well and made prints like Hopper. I think that watercolor, because it it's pigment suspended in water, you don't have as much control. And Edward Hopper mm. loved planning his compositions very, you know, with clear, you know, he loved the horizontal orientation of his paper or his canvas. And he carefully planned. And in, when he was, when he's making watercolor, you can see his graphite pencil as he delineates where the clouds are going to be, or in the case of the um, Bass, Gloucester Beach, Bass Rocks, where he's leaving much of the beach the, to be the paper showing in reserve, as we call it, or just untouched without very much wash so that it can be the brightest highlight. So for me, I think it allows artists, and, and it's true for Homer as well, um, to almost get out of their own way when they're working with oils. And oils, of course, require much more um, drying time. And, you know, they're not as, you can't be as fluid or as spontaneous or as uh, working as quickly, although, of course, you can uh, let watercolors dry and come back to them. So I do think that forced Hopper to let go a bit and to um, really sort of lean into the fluidity of um, his watercolor in a great work like The Mansard Roof from 1923, where I think we see a side of Hopper that many people may not know, where he's you know really working and enjoying those shadows cast all over the the lower screens of the house where the, you know, beneath the awnings and the awnings are sort of blowing in the Cape Ann um, winds that are all over the peninsula and the beautiful sunlight that's illuminating the scene. So I do think it's a side of him we don't normally think of there. And I do think he's able to capture that, that sense of atmosphere in watercolor much more so than he could in oil. He paints there for years. And I wondered, did, did, did Gloucester in the summertime bring out something in him that New York City simply couldn't? I think it's a wonderful contrast. I do think, so he's able to come back to painting in oil out of doors. He paints early on when he first arrives at the invitation of, of another friend who is an artist, Leon Kroll. Um, and Kroll had already been painting out of doors in New York City underneath the big bridges like Manhattan Bridge. And he left, he used to paint large canvases there. So when, when Edward Hopper comes in, in 1912, that's what he's doing. They're not really big canvases, but they're good size for him. They're like U.S. measurements, about two feet by three feet. So when he gets back to painting canvases in Gloucester on Cape Ann in 1926, he paints one of back streets. And then in the summer of 28, he's incredibly prolific and paints three 
major canvases of which the Hodgkins house we've talked a bit about is one. He paints the freight yards in Gloucester and he paints the center of Cape Ann had a, uh, an area called Dogtown with granite boulders and um, area where they used to let the cows graze. But other artists thought that the boulders poking through the landscape reminded them, someone like Marson Hartley said it reminded him of Stonehenge. It looked like a prehistoric landscape. So Edward Hopper paints that landscape with beautiful shadows um, cast by these boulders. So those three out, those are all painted out of doors. He says that later on, he paints mostly in his studio, even on Cape Cod, he's mostly painting indoors and and painting really much more from his from composites. He might do sketches on site and then come back into his New York studio or when he's on Cape Cod after 1930 he'll paint in his studio there. But he after he's as he's older when he's on Cape Cod, he rarely paints. Um he paints in his car, I should say. I should mention that. But he does like to create composites as opposed to setting up an easel right out in front of the scene that he's going to paint. Mm. So given the contrast that you mentioned, these bright, sunny, even beach scenes in Gloucester and then the dark, foreboding sometimes scenes in New York City, what is it that connects the two? I think largely the architecture and certain motifs that we see him trying out in um, Gloucester and in Cape Ann. So, for instance, um, one of my favorite watercolors is of a corner building um, it's called Street Corner, of course, uh, with a green door. And and what's unusual is the building is angled so that the door is where um, the streets come together at the at the sort of at the edge of the triangle. And so he he had earlier loved these buildings at intersections. I think because they're um, we can't really look down the street. We sort of look at an angle. Mm-hmm. So he shows a street at angles to it. And so, again, I, I mentioned a bit about how he loves these buildings at intersections with street facades behind them. So drugstore in New York is a corner drugstore where they often were located in Manhattan. And then in his Nighthawks, he has the diner at the intersection and he has a, a facade, a brick facade of buildings behind. So that's a one motif. Um, he's also really interested in, you know, this the symbols of the modernization of these small New England towns, a fishing village like Cape Ann and a, with the center of the granite industry, how they modernize. So things like utility poles, telephone, telegraph or water systems with the fire hydrant. So he includes this in one of his scenes, a watercolor of Tony's house in Gloucester. But then he's really going to explore um, the use of his fire hydrant in a streetscape in New York, his early Sunday morning, where he features the the fire hydrant. It's probably the most famous fire hydrant ever painted in, in American uh-huh. art because it's casting this long shadow along the sidewalk. So he he never thought of it as really he called it, you know, it's it's really a street facade and it's called later on. It's called early Sunday morning. But in any event, um, those are motifs he begins working with on Cape Ann. So they take a different form, I feel having spent time with these Cape Ann years, how they play out later on in his work, and certainly the focus on architecture. He did say famously, all I wanted to do was paint sunlight on the side of a house. But he also says later on about his famous oil of the New York office with the man and the woman in the office at night, that the architecture of that office and the space was extremely important to him down to the office furniture. And I do think that real strain of, you know, his focus personally on architecture 
is very evident, obviously, all over Cape Ann in these houses, because he says, you know, everyone else was going around looking at the harbor and all I wanted to do was paint houses. But but that is, I mean, maybe he was just painting uh, things, but, but we haven't even talked about the mood, the mood of mm-hmm. these paintings, you know, and, and I don't know how much of this is projection as a viewer, but I, I look at a painting of his like gas and it's ominous. Mm-hmm. It's ominous. It is. It is. Yes. It's just a p- painting of a gas station on a road, but it is. Um, there's almost horror to it, in my opinion. Yes, well, I think so. He does have this edginess, certainly that um, even filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock picked up on. So his um, single house, the the lonely house, um, becomes the inspiration for Hitchcock's uh, house in Psycho for the Bates huh. Hotel up. Well, so this is very uh, much, and this has been written about by a number of scholars, you know, about how, well, Hitchcock noted this. He also, you know, Hitchcock was contemporaneous. Hopper loved film and often as he, you know, even painted, obviously, New York movie. Um, He went to films a lot in New York City to inspire him, maybe when he had a sort of, he had, he suffered from inertia often where he couldn't really capture a subject he wanted to paint. So he would often go to film, you know, movies and and see films on the large screen in New York. But I do agree with you. There is an edginess. I mean, even in um, in uh, the Portuguese church, Gloucester, the way that churchyard, that the sorry, the schoolyard behind the church towers that you see above the schoolyard fence, you know, it's so carefully parsed. It almost looks like he um, really sliced it, sliced the composition. So there, you know, often this. Um, his friend Guy Pendebois said it's all about what he takes out that makes the work iconic. And so I do think he's editing out severely to the point where they do have this edginess. There's a sense of it, even though in Gloucester, he's responding to the incredible light there. That had to be a major draw. For yeah. Him, for maybe it's, the, maybe it's just because he loves corners and, and roads that sort of disappear behind something. And, and I wonder if it's just the human tendency to think well what is around that corner (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes very much yeah very much oh you've done a great job i could talk to you for hours thank you so much for your time today i know the exhibition has already been a huge success and thank you for your part in it it's a real pleasure to talk to you thank you jesse for having me and thank you again i hope your audience enjoys it hearing about it dr elliot boswick davis curator of an exhibition called edward hopper and cape ann illuminating an american landscape